You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Well, I don't know about you, but this year I found it a little bit difficult to come up with some New Year's resolutions. Uh, And maybe it's because of all of my plans and goals for last year getting canceled that it was a little hard to establish some for this year. Uh, But I found myself just sort of looking around like, well, what do I do? Like 2021, what do I do? And as I've talked to several other people, I've sort of gotten the same idea from them. When the subject of like goals for this year would come up, there's just this sort of idea of like, I don't even know, like if a person can make goals in the atmosphere we live in now. And it reminded me of a story that I want to share with you this morning. It's a story about a pilot, a pilot whose life and, uh, and goals got majorly disrupted. And this pilot's name is Jerry Cobb, which I think is one of those good, like just sounds like a fast name, doesn't it? Like Jerry Cobb. Uh, one of these, you know, just a, a cool, a really cool person. Born in 1931, Jerry's dad was a pilot and would often take his family up flying, and the kid got the bug early on. So by age 12, when I think some kids might be thinking about taking their parents' cars out for a joyride, Jerry was trying to take the plane out for a joy fly, right? And so this was happening. At age 16, Jerry got a pilot's license, and shortly thereafter began doing solo flights, and not only that, but began picking up any job possible that would involve flying, from delivering supplies, from crop dusting to charging. Um, doing charter flights and even working at a restaurant on an airstrip and then doing charter flights thereafter. Like you can imagine if you're getting on a plane like you're boarding and then you find out the pilot was your server at lunch and you're like, did we tip well? I hope we tipped enough because now this person's flying us. Uh, Jerry loved flying. And so then but the next step for Jerry was to do flying competitions. And so in, uh, by age 30, uh, Jerry began to rack up these records and flew a lot of these lightweight planes, the kind of smaller, smaller planes. And by age 30, Jerry held the record for long-distance flight in a lightweight, pl- lightweight plane, speed, and also altitude. So as far as lightweight planes were concerned, Jerry Cobb held the record for the furthest, the fastest, and the highest. And so in 1959, Time Magazine named Jerry as one of the 100 most important young people in the world, or I'm sorry, in the United States. Maybe they're more important in the world, but in the U.S., Jerry was considered one of the 100 most important young people because of Jerry's flying abilities. Now, around this time, NASA starts putting together a project known as the Mercury Project. And the Mercury Project was finding the best of the, ve- the best of pilots in America at that time with hopes of beating, you know, our, our opponents in the space race and sending the first person to space, which we didn't do that. Russia got there before us. But Mercury, the Mercury Project begins working on this. So there was a guy named Dr. Lovelace who put together these tests to figure out who is the best of the best that could be astronauts that could survive in this train that we know nothing about, and that became the Mercury 7, which I believe we have a picture of, and those are guys like John Glenn and um, those kind of heroes that we know of that were the first people from America to get into space. So Dr. Lovelace was this guy, Dr. Randy Lovelace, and he designed all the tests that helped select the Mercury 7, the tests that these pilots should go through, but he wasn't in control of who was chosen. And so when Randy Lovelace saw the pilots that were chosen for his testing, He started to ask, well, why is this pilot, Jerry Cobb, who is the fastest and the highest as far as lightweight plane go, why is Jerry Cobb not selected as one of these 
potential astronauts. And so he took Jerry and some other people. He found 12 other people in addition to Jerry that he thought were worthy to become astronauts and started doing the same tests that he had designed for NASA secretly with these 13 people. And so they started going through these tests and Jerry Cobb did really, really well. In fact, Jerry performed in the top 2% of all potential astronauts, including the Mercury 7. And so Jerry went through all of these different tests, began training to become an astronaut. And then finally, when Dr. Lovelace saw the success that he had with his candidates, he brought them to NASA and he said, my question is why people like Jerry Cobb have not been picked to be part of the Mercury program. And NASA's answer back to him was because, well, Jerry Cobb has not flown any combat flight missions, any jet combat missions. And the reason that Jerry hadn't flown any jet combat missions is because Jerry had not been in combat. And the reason Jerry had not been in combat is in those days, women didn't fight in combat. Yes, Jerry is short for Geraldine Cobb. You guys didn't think that only men could be pilots now, did you? So Dr. Lovelace, he gathered 13 women. And when he saw that NASA had only picked men, he started thinking like, well, maybe women, we don't know anything about space. Maybe women could do better than men in space. So he started picking them and training them, and Jerry Cobb was one of them. He theorized with all this that, you know, well, women weigh less, so we can, we can have, like, less weight in the capsule. They would take up less space in the space capsule. Women would breathe less oxygen than men, and he even found that women have a higher tolerance for pain than men, which I can just vouch myself. Like, you don't have to do, you know, I've been with my wife. She's way better with pain than me. And so he began training what became known as the Mercury 13. And he trained them secretly, and Jerry Cobb was one of these women in the Mercury 13, and she trained really, really well. She passed phase one of the test, phase two of the test, phase three of the test. She was at the top of the crop and in and, and the top 2% of all the astronauts chosen. And so Jerry then made it her goal to be an astronaut and possibly the first woman in space, possibly even the first person on the moon. This became her dream. This is what she sacrificed her time and her money towards, put a lot of physical effort towards, and they took it as far as it could get. And then NASA said, sorry. So then after that, these women even took it to the Senate and there were Senate hearings. It made it as far as the desk of the Vice President, Lyndon B. Johnson, before finally the, the program was terminated. And you have Jerry Cobb, who's given so much of her life and her time towards this goal of becoming an astronaut, walking around saying, well, what do I do now? Her plans had been disrupted. The goals that she made for her life became disrupted. What she thought she was going to do with her life now completely changed. And we can have a lot of arguments and talk. You guys can do that at lunch of like whether this was fair or unfair. But Jerry is left sitting there thinking, what do I do now? Which is a position I think many of us might identify with this year. As we've seen our lives get disrupted. Because of the many things that happened in 2020, jobs changed. Some jobs were lost. People's goals were reoriented. Some goals were dashed. Some dreams were lost. And it hasn't just been with jobs or finances. Some of us have lost people close to us from the virus or even just from other unexpected reasons in 2020. And so now we, as we look at our life, our families, our goals, what we thought our life was going to become it's easy to look around and say, well, what do I do now? This is where I think Jerry Cobb probably was at that point in her life. And I think it's a place that we also find the disciples in 
when we get to the, the end of the book of John. So this morning, we're going to be camping out at the end of the book of John. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up. Um, we'll have it up on the screens for you. But in the, in the end of the book of John, we find the disciples who have spent three years of their lives with Jesus, and now Jesus has died. He was executed at the hands of the Romans. And then we know that three days later, he rose again from the dead and he's reappeared to the disciples several times, but now he's not with them in the way that he had been with them. And so they're kind of walking around thinking, well, well what do we do now? And so in John chapter 21, we get this right here, starting in verse two. It says, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now there is a lot going on in this passage and I love kind of dissecting it. We don't get all of the, the details or the internal monologue of the disciples as they were going about these things. So we kind of have to make some guesses, but I think it's very interesting and very significant to see what it is the disciples do now that Jesus is not among them in the way that he had been. Because Jesus had been setting up this kingdom. Jesus had been establishing what they thought were these goals but now Jesus isn't with us anymore and he died and he rose again, but like, what am I supposed to do now? And so Peter looks at the other disciples, he's like, well, I'm gonna go fishing, which I think is a great way like to handle stress or questions in your life, just go out fishing, right? Like that is a great way to, to deal with that. But for the disciples, I think it was just a little bit more than like a time killer. I think it was a little bit more than just trying to clear Peter's head because for them, fishing was never a hobby. If you remember the disciples before Jesus called them, most of them and the ones that we read about here, Simon and the, the sons of Zebedee, they were fishermen. That was their job. That was their vocation, possibly their identity. I am a fisherman. But then Jesus walked on the shore and he said, well, I'm gonna call you away from being fishermen and I wanna make you fishers of men. So when the disciples are in this moment, in this, this place where they're like, what do we do next? They don't go to the things Jesus had taught them to do. They don't go out and start helping people and healing people and praying for people and talking about what Jesus had done. They went back to the thing that Jesus had called them away from. They went back to being fishermen. Maybe it was just a one-time deal, or maybe there's more going on here where they're like, well, I don't know what we do now. I guess we go back to this thing that we used to do. But Jesus had called them away from that. They went back to what was familiar. They went back to what was comfortable. They went back to what was safe for them. But it's what Jesus had called them away from. Now we have to ask this question, why? Why did they go back to fishing? Why did they miss it? Why didn't they see all that Jesus had done and immediately start going about the business Jesus had called them to? We don't have great answers for this. We can't sit down and talk to the disciples with it and they're following letters like Peter's not writing to people reflecting back on this. So we have to kind of make some guesses, but I wonder if part of the reason why in this moment they go back to this thing that they'd done before Jesus got there is that maybe they had misunderstood a lot of what Jesus had been doing on earth. 
I think maybe they had misunderstood the kingdom that Jesus was trying to establish. And let me give you some examples as to why. In the book of Matthew, chapter 20, we see the disciples, we don't often hear about their family, but we hear about one of the disciples or two of the disciples' mom coming up to Jesus. And in Matthew 20, verse 20, it says this. It says, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came up to Jesus with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit on your right hand and on your left in the kingdom. Now, there's a whole lot happening right here. First off, one of the nicknames we know of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, was sons of thunder. We don't exactly know why they have that name, but I like to, to wonder if it's maybe that the thunder they're talking about, like sons of thunder. I don't think it's their dad, Zebedee, who was thunder. Because if you remember when they're called like to be fishers of men, they just leave Zebedee in the boat. And he's like, hey, I got these nets like to keep mending. Like, I don't think he's the thunder in the family. But here we see the mom marching up to Jesus and she's like, I wanna know that my boys are gonna be in a place of esteem in your kingdom. I want them on your right hand and your left hand. Now, clearly, she's not understanding the kingdom that Jesus was establishing, right? She's thinking of an earthly kingdom. She's thinking of a king who would sit on a throne and then have like the vice king and the whatever else on his right hand and his left hand. So this is what she's coming and she's asking Jesus about. And I think the disciples thought this too. Because we read at the end of this verse that they're pretty ruffled by it because maybe they want those positions. And here, they're, here James and John, like their mom is coming up to Jesus trying to get them these special positions. Because in verse 24, it says, when he heard, then the 10 heard it. So the other, other disciples hear this. They were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. The disciples and clearly James and John's mom didn't understand the kingdom that Jesus was establishing. It wasn't an earthly kingdom. It was going to be an eternal kingdom. It was going to be a heavenly kingdom, not the one that they had pictured, but a new kind of thing happening. And I think the, the religious leaders of the day, they thought the same thing. Because if we went through the Old Testament, we could study and see how many of them thought that the Messiah, when he would come, would be one that would overthrow governments. That he would be a king that would sit on a throne, that it was a political thing and not eternal thing. But Jesus came for something different. Ultimately, that's a lot why Jesus was executed. Because these religious leaders thought that Jesus, claiming to be the king of the Jews, claiming to be the son of God, the Messiah, that he was starting a political revolution. That through this, he was going to try and overthrow Rome. And there had been people in the past that had tried this, and many people died because of those rebellions. And so they felt threatened by Jesus' possible political kingdom. And I think the, the disciples maybe thought the same thing. Maybe this is some of why they started following Jesus, thinking like, well, if he's going to start a new kingdom, I want to be a part of that, and I want to be high up in it. And even though they go with him for three years, even though they see Jesus talking about being a servant and see him healing people and doing all these miracles, even at the Last Supper, it still appears that they don't get it. After the first communion meal is served and they celebrate the Passover together, at the table in Luke 22, 24, it says, a dispute also arose among the disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. 
How many times did they have to hear Jesus talking about the first shall be last and talking about us being servants of others? And yet here, after Jesus has served the Last Supper, they're still saying, I think I'm going to be the greatest. They're still focused on an earthly kingdom. They're still thinking, it appears to me, about a political movement and not an eternal heavenly movement. And so with this, you sense Jesus's frustration. If we flip to the book of John at the same meal, Philip says to Jesus in John 14, 8, he says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. But then Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I think after three years with Jesus, giving their lives and their occupations up to follow him. I think after all that time, the disciples still don't fully realize what Jesus had come to do. And they clearly don't fully realize what Jesus wanted them to do. And really, we don't see this happen or take off until the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and invades the disciples in that way. But I think up to this point, they were mistaken and maybe thinking that Jesus was establishing some kind of earthly kingdom with earthly political rule that they would then be a part of. They'd put their hope in the wrong thing. They were looking towards the wrong thing to rescue them and their country, which is something the Bible tells us to be cautious of. Psalm 146.3 says this, Put not your trust in princes and the son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. When we put our plans into the things of men, when we put our plans into the things of earth, those things will perish. Right here, we have a valuable lesson that the Bible is telling us our focus shouldn't be on the things of men. We shouldn't be worried about the princes and kings of the earth. We should instead be worried about our heavenly king, which is Jesus. And as long as Jesus is on the throne, we have that hope. Because our hope doesn't come from our political leaders here. Our hope doesn't come from these earthly thrones here. And our peace doesn't come from those places either. It only comes from Jesus. And the disciples, I think they had missed this. And we see it because that moment where their life is disrupted and Jesus isn't with them in the way that they had been used to, they go back to what they were doing before they met Jesus. Their lives got disrupted and they go back to the comfortable. They go back to the familiar. And I think it's easy for me, it might be easy for you at this point to like look at what's going on in their lives and be like, how could they miss that? Like, how could they have been with Jesus so long, like seeing him do these miracles, do miracles themselves, and yet still not fully gather what Jesus was doing? It's easy to say those things, but my question to you, my question for myself is, when we get disrupted, what do we turn to? This past year has been a difficult year for many, many people in those difficult times. What did you find yourself turning to? Where was it that you began seeking hope? Often when our lives get disrupted, I think we turn to the familiar and the comfortable as well. And that can take many, many shapes. Sometimes it's some kind of like sinful habit, some sort of thing that we find comfort in that we know we shouldn't be a part of this, but man, it's hard right now. I deserve this. I'm just going to get back into this thing. It's familiar. It's comfortable. I know what to expect there. And it, it dulls the pain a little bit. It makes me not think about this stuff. 
We've seen that happen over the last year with several people. I don't know if you like follow this stuff, but every once in a while you hear about a celebrity that's maybe had a drug problem or a substance abuse problem. And this year we've heard about several of them that have slipped back into this problem and have headed to rehab. And it's a news story that they had this relapse of their addiction and now they have to go to rehab or this thing. There have been more of those in la this last year, I think, than, than usual. People slipping back into addictions. People going back to what is familiar, what is the comfortable, even if that thing might be destructive to me. Sometimes when life gets disrupted, we turn to things like our anger and we're just like short-tempered with everybody around us and we're super impatient and we just fall into these things. It can be an addiction, it can be anger, it can be a sinful habit. It could just be something that's like nothing, right? Like just a sort of nonsense thing. Like I'm gonna do this thing. It doesn't help anybody. It doesn't even really help me, but it just like is a thing to do. What do you turn to when your life gets disrupted? Peter and the disciples, they went back to fishing, to being fishermen, to what Jesus had called them away from. And it's interesting to see how this goes, all right? So go back with me to the book of John. So they go out fishing. Peter has this great idea. He's like, I'm gonna go fish. And they're like, all right, we'll go with you. And John 21, verse 4, it says, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. And the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And so then Jesus comes along and he says, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. Because in that last verse, verse 3, we read that they fished all night and yet they caught nothing. Which to me is always hilarious about the disciples. Every time we see them fishing in the New Testament, they're not catching anything if Jesus isn't around. And then when Jesus gets on the scene, they're able to catch stuff. So we often talk about how like Jesus didn't call the best of the best. Like he wasn't getting religious leaders and stuff to be a part of his movement. He called fishermen. Not only did he call fishermen, he called poor fishermen, right? Like they were not good at the one thing that they did. And that's who Jesus like, yeah, I can build stuff with this. So they're fishing all night and they have caught nothing. And I think there's maybe just a little bit of a spiritual analogy there that the moment that Jesus gets on shore, if we keep reading, it says, he says to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now these boats weren't that huge, right? If there's fish on the left side, there's gonna be fish on the right side. If there's not fish on the left side, there won't be fish on the, the, the right side. But they're looking at each other like, all right, let's give it a try. So they cast it in and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So Jesus walks on shore for whatever reason they don't recognize him, maybe because he's in a glorified body or maybe he's too far away or just he's hidden his appearance from him. Maybe he's got a fake mustache on. But before Jesus gets there, they're not catching any fish. And then when Jesus gets there, they have more fish than they can handle. Do you see the analogy there? Whenever we are fishing in the waters of the world, we are gonna come up empty. But whenever we are fishing with Jesus, man, we're gonna have more than we can handle. When we go back to the things that make us comfortable, the things Jesus has called us away from, we're only going to find emptiness in addiction, in anger, in sinful habits and relationships. There is only emptiness. But when we follow Jesus and his ways and what he has called us to, man, we are gonna find a real fullness. We're gonna find more than we can haul in which is exactly what happens with the disciples. And so then it says the disciple whom Jesus loved, which this is John, the way that he kind of like writes about himself. It says that he said to Peter, it's the Lord. So in this moment, why it took him this long, I have no idea. But in this moment, they're like, this feels familiar. Like, didn't this happen one other time? And oh yeah, it was Jesus. Maybe that's Jesus. John says, it's the Lord. And then when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, this is crazy to me. He put on his outer garment for he stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. 
Now, usually, like, if I go swimming, I take off my outer garment. Peter is not thinking clearly. He just puts back on his coat. He throws himself into the sea, and he starts swimming. And it says, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, about 100 yards off, which I think is far from land. Like, I don't know the last time you swam a football field, but this is what Peter swam to get to Jesus. And then it says that they drug all these fish back on shore and there Jesus had prepared for them a charcoal fire with fish laid on it and bread. And he said to them, come and have breakfast. I love what Peter does. The moment Peter looks at his situation and he sees I am here and Jesus is over there, he does whatever he can to get to Jesus the fastest. He's not going to wait on a boat full of fish to make its way rowing to Jesus. He throws himself in and he swims to Jesus, which should be an example to us. In our lives, if we find that we've ended up in a place that Jesus has called us away from, that we've ended up in a place where I am here, but God is over there, we have to do whatever we can, disregard our outer garment, whatever it is, and make our way to Jesus and where he wants us. And so then here we have Jesus has made them breakfast. It was just one of these cool scenes. I'd love to hear all the conversation that happened around that fire at breakfast And then afterwards, Jesus speaks to Peter. And I've always sort of imagined this, like him and Peter sort of walk away from the fire together down the beach. And if you remember, one of the last times that Peter and Jesus were were together was before Jesus was executed and Peter denied Jesus three times. Three times he said he didn't even know Jesus. And so you wonder how Peter feels now that he sees Jesus again and gets this moment to really talk to the one that he said he didn't even know, the one that he denied. Here's what Jesus says to him. It says, when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Then he said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time. Peter feels like Jesus keeps to have, has to keep asking him, do you love me? And then Peter says to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now there's been a lot said, and I think it's great to pull the comparison that Peter denies Jesus three times. And then Jesus gives Peter three opportunities to tell him that he loves him. And I don't know if Peter caught it in that moment, but we certainly do when we read this. But I also want to point out that right here, Jesus is giving Peter a purpose. Every time Peter says that he loves Jesus, Jesus follows that up with a goal, with a job, with a purpose for Peter who the day before, the night before, went out without a purpose, saying, well, I guess I'm just gonna go fish. Now Jesus makes it very clearly, and he says, do you love me? Peter says, yes, and then Jesus says, then feed my sheep. If you love me, this is what you're going to do. Three times, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Here's what you're supposed to do. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Be about my business. And here's where this comes to you and I as we look at our year and we say, well, what is my purpose? After this crisis in my life or this thing that's gone on for me, what do I do? I think our answer as followers of Christ is the same that Jesus gives to Peter. Our job is to feed his sheep. Our calling, if you want to use that term, is to feed Jesus's sheep, is to tell people about Jesus, 
is to serve people the way that Jesus served them, is to help them and put them before ourselves the way that Jesus instructed us to do. We are to feed his sheep. And I think sometimes we use that word calling and people think like, yeah, but like a calling is for like a pastor or a missionary. Like that's for like you and Matt, Ellie. That's not for me. Like callings are a big deal thing. I disagree. And, and I will give you an argument that shows that I believe the Bible disagrees as well. I think we are all called to feed Jesus's sheep. First off, we read in 1 Timothy 2, verse 3, it says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So I believe there's a calling for everyone on our globe. We could call this the global calling. Jesus is calling everyone in our world to have a relationship with him. That's a calling for everyone. It's not a special thing that only goes to some people. It says that he desires all to be saved. But then beyond that, if we go a little bit deeper, I think for Christians, there's a general call that goes to all Christians. And we hear that in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the great commission that maybe you memorized and I can never get it right. So I'm gonna read it to you because I should have it memorized. Here I am, but I don't. It says, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus's job, not just for his disciples, but for all Christians, his calling for anyone who considers themselves a follower of Christ is to make disciples, is to tell people about Jesus. What am I supposed to do this year? Feed his sheep. Tell people about him. Help people that God calls us to help so that they can come to know him. And so all Christians, I believe, are called to ministry. It's not just a thing for pastors. It's not just for me and for Matt and other leaders in our church. It is for all believers. It's for you. So as we stand around and say, well, what do I do with my life? Feed Jesus' sheep. Does that mean you quit your job right now and you take up a job like in full-time ministry? Maybe, but not necessarily. It means wherever you are right now, you find a way to bring people to God. You find a way to tell them about Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, I believe that if we can do this, if we as Christians can be about that business of following Jesus's sheep, I mean, feeding Jesus's sheep, I believe we'll change the world, I really do. I believe it's, a, it's an idea of like, we hear a lot about different economics, like trickle down economics, and people start talking about like trickle up economics, all this stuff. I really believe that this would be a trickle up situation. That if people, believers in Christ, even if we have low positions, we're not kings or queens in our world or presidents or politicians, even if we're just like what we might say are nobody, just normal person. If just these normal persons, if we feed Jesus' sheep, if we can be about his business, I believe it will trickle up and it will change the people around us and then that will change the people above us and that will change our world. I think all too often we focused on those in charge and in power and saying that's the people that need to be making the difference when it is us we should be making the difference. And we do that by feeding Jesus' sheep. He wants all of our world to come to know him. And he wants to use us as part of that plan. So how you do it specifically, that is between you and God, that specific way that he wants to use you, that's between you and him. And we see in Jeremiah, this specific calling, Jeremiah talks about his calling God has given him in Jeremiah 29. He says, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there's in my heart, as it were, a fire burning and shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in and I cannot. You've got to figure out what is that fire God has put in you? What is the special ability, the unique way that God has designed you and created you, the gifts that he has given you? 
the thing inside you that if you're not doing that thing, it's like a fire shut up inside you. And I think through looking at that stuff, we can figure out that's how God wants to particularly use me in this world, in my life, to feed his sheep and bring others towards him. And I believe if we can figure that out and follow those things, we will change our world. If we went back to Jerry Cobb, remember Jerry Cobb? She's got this moment where she has lost her dreams, right? Like her dreams of being an astronaut are dashed. Like there's no way now she's gonna be the first woman in space or the first person on the moon. And so what does Jerry Cobb do? She, she took it as far as she could. Legally, she went through the whole process. She did all of these things. But after that, she doesn't go and, and grab like a, a protest sign and start storming the streets. She's not writing like an angry Facebook post because they didn't have Facebook back then. What Jerry Cobb did and said, and she didn't go wallering around, like we don't read like, and then she became an alcoholic and all this like terrible stuff happened in her life. That wasn't what Jerry Cobb did. What Jerry Cobb did after her dreams of becoming an astronaut are dashed, she became a missionary. And she began using the skills that she had developed as a pilot to begin flying missions into the Amazon to reach the un, unreached peoples of the Amazon with the word of Christ. She began using her, her map-making skills of drawing maps to these areas that had never been charted, and then she would fly missionaries into these tribes in the Amazon, and she would deliver medicine to these people in the Amazon. She didn't sit around saying, like, well, my plans are dashed. What do I do now? She started seeking God's plan for her, and through that, she was able to feed his sheep with the gifts that God had given her. I told this story to my daughter, Cora, one time over dinner when I just read about Jerry Cobb. And she's like, man, being a missionary, I think that's better than being an astronaut. And like my pastor's heart was just so pleased in her. Like as much as I'd love to see when our kids go to space, like man, to see them really fulfilling Jesus's goal for us of feeding his sheep, how exciting. So Jerry Cobb would go out to these distant places. She'd string up a hammock under the wings of her airplane. And it talks about when she heard of Neil Armstrong setting foot on the moon that she was broadcasting that through the radio of her plane one night with that hammock underneath the wing. And she talked about how she wasn't bitter, but she was excited. And she jumped up on the top of her plane and started dancing from one end of the plane wing to the other. And later in an interview, she said this, when somebody asked her about going to the moon, she said, I'd be interested in going to the moon if the government wanted to send a woman, but I'm very happy with what I'm doing. She said, I feel I can accomplish more in South America. I've got it all, she said, adding, I'm one of the most fortunate people in the world. All of this because she figured out what God wanted to do with her, and that was feeding his sheep. So our challenge, if I could give us a goal for 2021, it would be this, that we would find out how we can feed Jesus's sheep. That we'd find out how regardless of what our plans are, regardless of what might have been disrupted in our lives, how is it that God wants to use us to change our world? And I don't think it's gonna come through political offices. I don't think it's gonna come through the way that we vote. I'm not saying not to vote your convictions, but I'm saying don't only vote your convictions. Also act on your convictions. If you believe in what the Bible is talking about, begin telling people what the Bible is talking about. Begin serving people in the way Jesus talks about and feed his sheep. And I think through that, we will find our purpose. So this morning, if, if you found that you're in a spot and Jesus is in another spot, man, make this the morning where you jump in and you swim to him. If you're looking around at your life right now saying, what do I do about these goals that I had? Find out what are Jesus's goals for you. And a little hint, I think, is that he wants us to feed his sheep. So let me pray with us as we 
think on these concepts in these last songs that we sing. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that when our plans might get disrupted, you have greater plans for us. I pray, God, if any of us have found ourselves like the disciples wondering, what do I do this year? What do I do about my goals? Help us to see, God, where maybe our goals have veered away from your goals, where our plans need to come together with your plans. And I pray, God, that you would show us ways that we can feed your sheep. It might be something as small as helping out at, at the Hope House for Sent to Serve, to try and volunteer at a place where there are mothers in crisis so that we can help somebody, God, through a pregnancy. God, it could be as small as, as, as helping clean the kitchen at the Haven of Rest so that the homeless people in our community can come and be fed there. God, it might be as small as turning off the side of the road and, and, and talking to the person who has a cardboard sign up. God, I pray that you would just show us, show us the, the coworkers in our lives, the people around us, God, who need to see you. And I pray that we would realize that we are the mirror holding your reflection to them. And God, help us to show you to them. God, help us to feed your sheep and be about your business. Let us make that our goal for 2021. And let us not put our hope in the wrong things this year or look to the wrong things to provide for us, God, but let us look to you. God, use us this year. It's in your name I pray.